side. Let me just read it again. We'll be going through it a little bit by bit, by bit but it's not very long. Let me just read it. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from me, I have no good thing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they're the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their name on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This psalm has a title, as many psalms do, and we almost never even mention it, but I want to talk about it a second this morning. It's, the title says it's a miktam of David, a miktam of David. That's a Hebrew word, and we don't quite know what it means. Um, David wrote six psalms, which he called miktams. They're uh, Psalm 56 to 60, and then this psalm, Psalm 16. Now, it has been, it, 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 there's been some discussion about what that word means, it, it comes from the word to cover, which doesn't, doesn't solve the mystery. <laughs> what does that mean? But when we look at the other five psalms, other five miktams, it's easy to see a pattern. Let me, let me, just, uh, let me just give you some, some lines, some quotes out of those psalms. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my lips, eager to take my life. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. I am in the midst of lions. I lie, I lie among ravenous beasts. They spread a net for me. Break the teeth in their mouth, O God. Tear out the fangs of the lions. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me. Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. All these are prayers from someone who's in danger. So what does that have to do with the, with the word, the meaning of the word, which really comes from covering? Well, Erdman's commentary suggests a view of the perils named, suggests that in view of the perils named, the covering is that of the lips covered in secrecy. If so, the heading might be translated a silent prayer for help. For in none of these cases could David have recited a prayer in the usual way. These are quiet but desperate prayers in the face of danger. Please, to God, to have mercy. And so verse 1 begins, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. Here's a prayer in the face of danger. A quiet pouring out of the heart to God in the face of some threatening situation. But when we look down through the psalm, there's no enemy spoken of. There's no violent foe stalking David, no one seeking to kill him, that we can tell. Instead, his enemies, the enemies threatening here are simply the pressures of life. Here David breathes a prayer for refuge in the face of the very pressures that we face today. 
They're driving people to depression and despair and alcoholism and suicide. The issues of life are a constant threat to people living and dying. So after that long introduction, I have two points (laughs) to this psalm. The first point is about living. It encompasses verses 2 to 8. And it actually has four subpoints, so it's a little hard to follow. The second point is about dying, and it encompasses only the last few verses, nine to eleven. So let, let's uh, let's go through it here. The first thing that we learn here is that God is sufficient for the struggles of life. God is sufficient for the struggles of life. I suspect all of you know the television game show Jeopardy. Now, there's one thing that, that uh, diff- makes that show different than any other game show, and that is that they give you the answers, and you have to come up with the questions. Studying the psalm, acting as if we're, pr- pl- we're playing Jeopardy, helps me understand it. In each, in each section, David comes up with an answer to one of life's struggles. Our task is to figure out what struggle is he talking about. So he gives us the answer. We have to figure out the question. So in verse 2, when David wrote, you are my Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. What issue is he addressing? What struggle is he addressing? Well, he seems to be struggling with the most basic question. What is is, uh, life's highest good? What is worth living for? And his answer to that question is our first little sub point. God is worthy of my life. He is life's Highest good. You see, if that is not your answer, then your life is just a piece of junk. It was that conviction that there is no meaning, that there is nothing worthwhile that led to the dropouts of the 60s. That's characteristic of all existentialist philosophy, which is still around. And if that becomes our conclusion, we too will be in despair. Nothing worthwhile to do. No goal worth pursuing. No meaning in anything. Therefore, I'm good for nothing. I just appeared. I'm just going to disappear. It doesn't matter. But that was not David's answer. Instead, he sounded like he knew the first question of the Westminster Catechism. I don't think he did. But the question is, what's the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So David said, You are my God. Apart from you, I have no good thing. See, God is sufficient for the issues of life, for he gives meaning and purpose to everything. Then continuing down to verses 3 and 4, when David delights in God's saints, it speaks of the sorrows of those who run after other gods. What issue or struggle is uh, is behind that conclusion? Well, I believe he's talking about the social pressures of the world. The fact that we're social creatures susceptible to peer pressure. And we live in a sinful world where that peer pressure is always tempting us to turn away from the the Lord and go serve some other God. You see, for all of our pride and our independence, we still are hopelessly connected to other people. Other people constantly define who we are and what we're worth and whether our life is worth living We cannot escape feeling the pressure from those around us, though they often seek to lead us away from our God. But God is sufficient for this too, for he has joined us 
to his people. God has addressed our need to belong by joining us, not just to himself, but to his people. God has set us apart for himself, distinct from those who do not know him. And now he has made us part of his body, a family, a community to which we belong because we belong to Christ Jesus. So I challenge you not to take lightly this relationship which we have in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are fellow citizens in God's holy nation. We are royal, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, God's own treasured possession. We are set apart from the world and its false worship, set apart, separated to Christ. And in this new relationship which God has established, he has provided in us the connection the true belonging, the identity that we need to live for him in the midst of a pagan world. Don't ever think that this aspect of our faith is optional. No, it's an absolute necessity. That's why Jesus teaches us how to resolve sins when they come up between us. That's why he calls us to love one another and as a distinguishing mark of discipleship. That's why the apostles make love for the brethren a test of, 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 of the saints. For in fellowship with his people, in the bonds of relationship with his, with his saints, God nurtures and grows us in faith, holds us close, and protects us from the sorrows of going astray. Then moving on to verse 5 and 6, what's the issue? The question being answered. Well, here we find that God is sufficient for life's struggles, for he makes me content. Content. Contentment is a lost element in our society. Satisfaction eludes us as insecurity threatens us. So we climb harder and higher up the ladder of success, only to find greater insecurities and less contentment. So where will it all end? Where, when can we rest? Is there ever real, any real contentment? Well, we can find peace and security, which does not rise and fall with the whims of man. We can find that only where David finds it. In verse 5 and 6, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. <laughs> David does an interesting thing here. He picks up the attitude of the Levites. The Levites were were that tribe from which the priests came. When the land was parceled out, what did the Levites receive? Nothing. So in an agrarian culture where the land was wealth and power and, and security, what were they to do? What were they given? Well, their portion... Was the Lord. So as people brought their offerings to the Lord in worship, the priests were supported and provided for. Now David calls all God's people to adopt that mentality. God is enough. God alone is enough. He alone is sufficient. What, whatever his providential care provides, it's enough. Whatever insecurity I may feel, in reality, I am perfectly secure For my inheritance is the Lord. That's a lesson we need to learn. And it's a hard lesson to learn. 
Listen to the griping among Christians. What is this chronic discontentment we have? What is this desperate clamoring after the things of the world? What is this self-pity which Christians so often wallow in just like the world does? What is this bitterness and resentment over, over our calling in life? No. God is my portion. Do you not know that God promises to work all things together for the good of his people? Does that promise not apply to your present troubles too? Will you accept blessing from the hand but refuse to accept hardship? Refuse to trust him when you can't see what he's doing? God is sufficient. He is our portion. Let me encourage you. God has not forgotten you. Indeed, he may be uh, letting you go through a rough time to strip away every other hope that you might have so that for the first time in your life you'll have to absolutely trust him. He may be Refusing to remove the turmoil in your life until you learn to rest in him who alone can give you to rest. God is sufficient for your life in his providence. You're secure. He is our portion. Finally, we come in this first section, we come to verses 7 and 8. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Again, that's the answer. What's the question? What struggle of life is described here? Well, this one's pretty easy. It's our need for guidance, uh, for counsel, for instruction. This is often our most debilitating problem, frankly. We, we, we worry, what should I do? What's the right decision? I don't know which way to go. What if I make the wrong choice? Then what's going to happen? Well, God is sufficient for that too. He directs our steps. None of us know what the future holds, but the Lord is able to direct our steps. Indeed, he promises to give us wisdom when we ask him. Oh, he does not promise to write his will out for us in the clouds so we won't have to make a decision. He does not promise that we'll hear him speak or we'll have an angel visit us and tell us what to do. No, he promises to give us wisdom and understanding to order our lives so that we walk in his ways. He cautions us, don't be like a dumb beast that you have to put a halter on and drag him around. No, you're made in God's image. He's given you an intellect. He's given you an ability to make decisions. So seek God's will and his word Uh, Seek his counsel, ask him for wisdom, and then decide. Might you ever make a mistake? Yes, you will. We're human. We all make mistakes. But God is the Lord of our mistakes as well as he is the Lord of our wise, wise choices. And through it all, he directs our steps. God is sufficient for all life's struggles. He's sufficient and for he is our highest good. He is sufficient for he has joined us to his people. Given us a, 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 a community in which we can grow and, and stay true to him. He's sufficient for he makes us content because his providence is sure. He's sufficient for he directs our steps. But how can all that be enough for the significance of our living is constantly held captive to the reality of our coming to Death. Death lurks just around the corner, promising to make a mockery of all of our efforts, promising to leave our dreams unfinished, 
promising to rot the very bodies in which we plan to live and labor. So how can it be that God is sufficient? Well, there's one more stanza here. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Which brings us to our second major point. God is sufficient, not just for the struggles of life. God is sufficient in the face of death. Here David faces death saying, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. What? Is this man out of touch with reality? Does he not know what a terrible enemy death is? Or did he know something that the rest of us didn't think about? Well, According to the Apostle Peter, that's exactly what it was. David did not think that when he died, in three days he would rise from the dead. I don't think he thought that. No, David spoke as a prophet, describing what would one day take place when the Messiah came. But his prophetic message from the Lord did explain the hope that he had, which enabled him to live with joy, even though he knew he would die, and to look death in the face with confidence, knowing that death was not the last word for his life. This passage is quoted in Acts chapter 2. The Apostle Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost. Let me read a part of how he quotes it. He said, David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. So God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. There's a profound connection between what David wrote and what happened and what Peter announced at Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the things that God promised to David had come true. For Peter admits that David's David's grave was right over here. We all know David wasn't talking about himself. But what has happened? What has happened? David was not just making a blind leap of faith. No, what has happened is that Jesus has risen from the dead. And that changes everything. Now, how is that going to work out? David is making a statement of faith of how he trusts the Lord for dying. But how? 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 Well, David probably himself didn't understand how. God spoke through him by his word of prophecy That God would conquer death himself by the resurrection of his son Jesus so that he might give his people meaningful life now and eternal life forever. David understood and believed God's promise, but he didn't know how it was going to work out. It was not until Jesus rose from the dead that the things David believed made sense. Nonetheless, David believed. David believed. In verses 9 and 10, he said, I'm not afraid of dying. Well, that's the promise of Hebrews 1 concerning the work of Jesus. By his death, Jesus destroyed the devil who holds the power of death and freed all those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. By faith, David knew that. 
David believed what God had revealed was going to, go, going to happen, though he did not completely understand and had not yet seen it happen. Nonetheless, he was not afraid of dying. And then according to verse 11, what God's people are to experience is nothing less than the joy of God's presence now and forever. And that was exactly David's experience. That's what he trusted the Lord for. He says, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. That's right now. But he goes on in verse 11 and says, <clears throat> and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's someday. That's forever. God is not only sufficient for the struggles of life. God is sufficient in the face of our dying. So this morning I call you to lift your eyes to Jesus. Lift your eyes beyond your present circumstances and consider what he has done. By his death and resurrection from the dead, Jesus made it possible for us to live in joyful confidence and to face death in joyful hope of eternal life. Every year, thousands of people commit suicide and thousands become alcoholics and become unglued in emotional distress. All of those people are victims of the dangers of life. Not dangers imposed on us by enemies with weapons, but the dangers of just living. Well, Psalm 16 is God's word to us. That he is sufficient for all those struggles of life which threaten us every day. He is sufficient for our search for a reason to live. He is life's greatest good. He is sufficient for our desperate need for people who will nurture our faith and not destroy it. He has joined us to his body, his church. And in those people, we delight. He is sufficient for our search for contentment, for he himself is our portion. And his providence is enough. We can rest secure in our situation. And he is sufficient for our desperate search for direction, for he leads us every step and walks beside us as we go. God is sufficient for the issues of life. But he's also sufficient for the ultimate issue, the threat of dying. Way back here in Psalm 16, a thousand years before Jesus was born, God revealed that Jesus, David's greatest son, would not be abandoned to the grave, but would conquer death. To us, the good news has now come of Christ's resurrection, the fulfillment of this promise. Now we, more than anyone before, should understand that God is enough to sustain us in the face of dying, for he has removed death's sting. He has rendered it powerless to defeat us. And so this morning I call you to entrust yourself to Jesus, who alone is sufficient for your living, and for your dying. Amen. Let's pray.